0: Welcome, back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan Hansen.
1: And I'm Jake Friedman.
0: And this is the podcast about decisions in games.
1: And today we're talking about Rondells. What could be more exciting than that than Rondells? Rondell, Rondell, Rondell. That's what it's all about today. We'll start with some recent plays from the Geekway convention where we played thindorf, and Imperial 2030, both impressive Rondell focused designs. And then we'll do a little bit of broadening out the conversations to talk about Rondells generally and what they mean for the decision space, what they do well, and maybe what they don't do well. Brendan, how does that sound to you? Sounds awesome.
0: And if you as a listener are sort of like, wow, these rondell things, I don't know anyone named Rondell, don't worry. We're gonna define Rondell's at the top top of the show, talk about what they are and how they drive games like Findorf and Imperial 2030. But before we get into that, one thing we often like to do on the show is to read out recent reviews from listeners just like you. Reviews go such a long way in raising the profile of Decision Space, help the show get in front of more people, and make it a reality that there's even more awesome content for you to listen to. So if you've already left a review, thank you. If not, please consider it. And with that, we'll read this one from a casual board gamer, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven from the Netherlands.
1: And their review says insightful, but dot, dot, dot. Okay. I'm getting a little nervous. Um, so here's their review. Love the deep dives that explore the decisions of our favorite games. The What We Talk About episodes endeavor to define terms of board game design for further discourse. But they are wrong about Broom Service, which is clearly inferior to its predecessor, Which Is
0: Brew. Seriously, guys? <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Casual Board Gamer, for that review. I would love to play Witch's Brew. Yeah, I know that on the secondary market, this is like a 100 to 150 plus dollar game right now. It's out of print. Uh, so I don't often think about trying to proxy a game, Jake, but Witch's Brew is what I'm curious about. Yeah. Maybe trying to make that happen.
1: I don't know that we can be wrong about it when we haven't played Witch's Brew. And so, you know, we're just saying we love broom service.
0: Yeah, broom service is awesome. Jake, we've talked about broom service so much. I want to talk about rondells say, and there are yeah. no rondels in broom service.
1: All right. Well, let's define them. Brendan, what's a rondel?
0: So a rondel is a action track that, that dictates what you can do in a game. I think the key thing about it is that there's a loop in which a pawn or player pieces are moving on. There's a lot of subcategories and things that might fit here, but most importantly is that there's a looping circle in some way, shape, or form with pieces that can move on them. And when you land on a given space, you're either taking an action defined by that space or maybe making a purchase or selecting a piece that exists there. Loosely, we've sort of seen that these probably fall into two categories. Uh, our, one of our Discord decision knots, as I'll call them, uh, Manatee sort of was like, hey, I- I think what you guys are trying to get at is there's really two categories of rondelles in a lot of ways, or they, they fall into these two different fields. And I think that that's true. There's these action space driven rondelles where whenever you land on one of those spaces, you're going to take a certain action in the game. And the rondel and moving along that rondelle and the spaces that you choose to land on or skip is going to define your path through that decision space, right? If I... It's all about sequencing and trying to keep pace with other players as some of the spaces might be stronger. A game like that that comes to mind is a game like Imperial 2030 that we'll talk about or even Bindorf that we'll talk about. Then there's the sort of more market-driven rondels, where there's lots of things laid out and you have the potential to select certain tiles uh, or certain things to add to what you're doing based on moving around that shared space. So an example of this is a game like Patchwork that typically gets put in this rondelle category. You're moving around a selection of tiles. You can move a certain number of spaces uh, and you're going to take what's there and it loops around. Uh, Once you move all the way around that circle, you go again. Uh, I think that's on the edge of what feels like a normal rondelle to me. Glenmore 2 falls into that sort of category of uh, a market as well. And then there's things in the middle, like hybrids, like Great Western Trail, that kind of take elements of both of these ideas and mash them up into kind of a a mega hybrid rondelle game.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Just to sort of synthesize what you're saying here, a rondelle is an action selection or resource selection mechanism that can appear in games that is cyclical in nature and moving around it. Has some sort of opportunity
0: cost. Boom! That was a, that was beautiful, Jake. Thanks. And straight so, out
1: the dome.
0: <laughs> well done. <laughs> uh, typically, too, you know, a lot of these games will have riffs on that mechanic, right? Where maybe it costs more to move further, mm-hmm. or or you can't. S- Take the same action multiple times, or maybe you can. We'll talk about all those little textured differences in Rondell games and some design considerations for if you want to set off to design a Rondell game or to think about playing a Rondell game in the second half of the show. But in the beginning, we're going to do two case studies of Rondell games we recently played. So, Jake, what do you say we start off with the freedom and freeze game, Findorf? <laughs> Okay, so do you want to give the overview? Yeah, it says
1: in the note, Jake provides brief overview of game systems, etc. What what are we just going to throw our notes out the window now, as soon as a game overview comes up that you want to (laughs) do? No, I'm really excited to hear you talk (laughs) about
0: Well, I'll give the details. Okay, okay, fine. And then you can then you give the (laughs) overview of the game. Okay, great. So (laughs) Findorf is a game from Freedom and Freeze, German designer, best known for games like Power Grid or... I really like his game Fauna. People typically mention Friday, Fresh Fish, Fast Slots, uh, 503.4. You might be realizing that a lot of his games use Fs uh, in their titles. So Findorf is no exception. And it's actually based on the... It's a game that thematically is trying to simulate the growth of his hometown town of Findorf uh, and it was published in 2022 from 2F Spila Friedman Fries's company. Oh my goodness, my palette. It's just F's all the way out.
1: Yeah, this is probably a really good time to include this anecdote which is I read the rules of Findorf and the first sentence is Findorf is a game about the establishment of this town. Second sentence of the rulebook is just Findorf has three F's in it.
0: (laughs) Yes, it does. (laughs) Yes, it does. Very
1: important to understanding how to play this game. Uh, So anyway, in this game, you are building out this town. And the main mechanism that runs the engine of this game is a rondelle that has four different actions on it. Those actions are purchased. That's how you're going to buy the structures that are so key to scoring points in this game and building up your economy, as well as industry tiles that allow you to produce. The second action is higher where you can just take workers th- that you'll use to power those industry tiles. The third is to produce. That's where you'll put the workers on those industry tiles. And then you have the sell action, which is when you'll sell resources that you have in your warehouse. That's going to speed up the game because this game ends once you've completed two railroad routes essentially that's a shared railroad going across the board every time somebody sells a rail that's one of the ways that uh, that railroad will be built out and also give players money then at the bottom of this action selection rondel is sort of a bureaucracy step so anytime a player basically falls off the bottom of their action selection uh, then you'll perform the bureaucracy step which is when you'll get any income, you'll be able to uh, build out the railroad further for every pair of worker and house on the board. Uh, you will also kill off one of your workers who dies of old age after, you know, living a happy life, presumably in, in the town of Findorf. Um, and then you'll be back to the top. So that's sort of the where the rondelle comes in here, you're always able to move zero to three spaces down that rondelle, meaning that every single one of those actions will always be available to you on any given turn of the game. However, you cannot take the same action twice in a row and pass a bureaucracy step. So if you need income, you're going to have to choose something different in the next round of the game.
0: So, it's really interesting, right, because the Rondel in Findorf is purchase, hire, produce, sell. And at the end of it, you do that bureaucracy step. But Findorf has this unique mechanism of Rondel games that I've played which allow you to augment the number of actions that you take at even any given stop along this Rondel. So you can By the right to do more actions when you take any of these actions. So you start off with just being able to do one. So when you take the higher step, you just hire one worker. But by paying some of your valuable income early on, you can add to that spot such that in future times you take the higher action, you'll always take two workers to add to your pool. And that's the same as true of purchasing and production and selling, which adds a lot of texture to the rondelle as the game develops. There's sort of a path of least resistance in some ways where, you know, early on being able to get lots of purchases, that's something you'll want to do in the game is really good. But then at the same time, getting lots of production is really good because you can produce on more of the tiles that you've purchased. Uh, and then also maybe selling is really good because you've produced so much. And then hiring is really great. Because you don't want to waste all your time. So you see this sort of problem here, right? You kind of want to do everything, but you can't do everything and you're competing over their shared, shared tiles. But it's neat because your rondelle will always have the same spaces as everyone else at the table. You always have the same core actions, but how many things you can do at that given stop is going to shift and flux throughout a game of Findorf. And figuring out when you've invested enough in a specific action type and when to focus elsewhere is a fun timing puzzle kind of at the heart of Findor.
1: Yeah, it feels like it enables players to specialize, right? You could take a path through this game where you really try and early on make one of your actions strong. Or you can kind of go for a generalist strategy where maybe you're always trying to keep your action selection spaces somewhat close to each other. So if you want to have four higher actions and one of each other, that's fine. Or perhaps you want to just have times two on all the actions on the rondel, And I think pending sort of the setup of the game, what other players are trying to do, different paths are going to be more or less viable.
0: In playing Findorf, and we'll sort of get to this, what's cool about it, for me is based on how you upgrade your rondelles and the actions that you can take, I guess your rondelle slices, your rondelle spaces, you might cycle through the rondel a couple times before you make a, a stop at a certain location, right? Like my engine was sort of set up in, in this game, Jake, to I wanted to make buys, but I needed to run through the whole rondelle once or twice to get enough money and other things that it would be meaningful to me for me to stop on that purchase space. So it's cool, we are all kind of taking taking this different path. I'll also say because I don't know where I'm going to put this in the conversation if not for here. Findorf is maybe the most thematic euro game I've ever played because it's a simulation of the development of this German town in the 1800s. And it's not hyper thematic, but there's just enough there and enough little touches that the more we played, the more I sort of felt like I I was invested in and cared about the growth of Findorf. There's this cool mechanism where real-world buildings uh, were built in Findorf over this period of time and they're all represented in the game, and they're all associated with the year they were built. And as you play, you simulate the advancement of time in the game. And once you pass the year in which in in our real world, a building was built in the real world Findorf, that building gets like a discount, right? Like the the cosmic karmic need for that to come into being and our simulated Findorf is like easing up and it makes it easier to get to the table so that was a cool mechanism that made us all kind of like watch with the timeline it was like oh the meat market's about to come we're all yeah. gonna be ready and then it comes out onto the board yeah it's so
1: interesting because it's definitely a fiddly component like in our play of the game my two plays of the game it's something that is sort of people are forgetting to move it forward and several times throughout the game we're all counting how many different structures people have built and like okay we need to advance this thing like three steps forward so it's another is a fiddly element that doesn't need to be there but does add that thematic element. And the structures that we're building are all like the boathouse, or the slaughterhouse, or, you know, a specific estate that really existed there. And one of the things that's funny about how this game was developed is that each of those is numbered from earliest built to latest built. And then on the board, you're there's 25 total of these structures. And then on the board, they're located where they really are located. So you'll have like, I built the 17 and then everybody's just looking at the board. Like where the hell is the 17 on this board where a different game with a different design Design goal. goal would have these things sequentially ordered by number. That would be so much easier, so much more usable. But here the design goal is clearly leading with thematic integration of this place. And it, Definitely does hamper the game's usability. It makes it a little bit less streamlined, a little more finicky. But it felt to me refreshing to play a game with a design goal where where the goal isn't just let's make this as streamlined and elegant as possible during the development. It felt fresh in a way that I thought was really fun. And I would gladly trade, you know, 30 seconds of searching the board for a game that just feels so different from, you know, every other modern Euro style game that I've been playing. Yeah, come out in the past, you know, four or five years.
0: I think you're spot on that. It was really refreshing in that sense, Jake. And functionally, the way this mechanism works, something about Findorf is you're all dealt or you draft a hand of cards at the start of the game. And those cards all represent those buildings that Jake was talking about.
1: And this is the game, I think.
0: This is the game. Whenever you build one of those cards, one of those buildings, it gives you 50 points. At the end of the game, your money is also points, your buildings are points. So building those cards is the most important thing. And functionally, once you've built it, you've built it and you'll still have that card in front of you. There would be no need mechanically to put the building on the board. So that's why we say it's just thematic because the game invites you to sort of simulate the growth of Findorf by putting this little token to represent it's been built out there.
1: It gives you a little pop of color.
0: Yep. The other important thing that you need to know about Findorf because of the importance of building these cards. Uh, you're dealt, is it six at this start, Jake? It depends it on five?
1: the number of players in the game. Okay. So I believe there will, al- there's 25 cards in the game and there will always be a market of five publicly available cards cool. anyone can build. And I think the rest are just dealt out to players. That might not work exactly like that in like a two-player game, but I think I played at four and five and in the four-player game everybody got six cards or whatever it was and then there's five uh, in the middle, in the five-player game, everybody got five. And yeah. Five. So something something along those lines.
0: And there's some really interesting synergy with the mechanisms mechanisms going on here. The action selection of the rondelle that's all about opportunity costs and sequencing. And the fact that you're dealt this hand of cards, to be competitive in the game, it really feels like, from our first few plays of this game, you have to build almost all of the cards in your hand. And you really want to build some of the shared cards that start face up on the table that anyone can try to complete quickly. So the game's a race.
1: Yeah, I think the game is intentionally designed that you have to either build the most or tied for the most to realistically have a good chance at winning the game.
0: Yeah. So there's tension around doing things fast, but there's also tension around getting everything done because if you don't complete one of the building cards that you're dealt at the start, that's 50 points that you've left on the table. So that creates this really rich puzzle between, okay, which of these can I kind of pursue that's in the open selection without hampering my path towards completing all the other buildings I have, and at the same time, not falling behind and sort of developing my production economy that's going to mean I can do it quick quickly enough and parsing that through, oh, which of these Rondell actions can I afford to skip uh, so maybe I can get back to buying something a little bit more quickly. I found it really interesting and fun. And then the other thing is the turns just went around the table in Findorf, Jake. We were, people were excited to take their next move, which means that it was a clear path on sort of a short-term plan for a lot of people to their next decision, to their next like achievement of building a building or something like this. So I would say there were times where each of us would take a move in less than 20 seconds. Definitely. Just like flying.
1: My hope for this game was that it would be a game that plays in like 90 minutes. And it it was 90 minutes learning and teaching the game to five new players. When we played at four, it was like an hour. And I think that is really cool for a Euro game that has a lot of meat to it and is highly thematic to be able to do all that and still achieve that short play time. That's worth a lot of praise in my book. The other interesting thing, to bring it back to the conversation on Rondell's, uh, I want to mention how how that plays out here is that the bureaucracy phase starts out at the beginning of the game as a detriment. You're losing a worker and you're not gaining very much income at all, if any, the first time you're taking that action. So the only reason you wanted, you have to do it because you want to get back to the buy searches, action, uh, yeah. which is really important at the beginning of the game. We're sort of racing to get these tiles because they increase in cost uh, as you know they as they go down the stack. But towards the end of the game, hitting the bureaucracy stage is a massive windfall of income and points, essentially, because you have all these structures and. A lot of them give you just straight up income or allow you to do something else that's really beneficial to you. So it's interesting that at the start of the game, it feels like you want to sort of crawl through the rondelle taking one action, then the next one, then the next one. But towards the end of the game, you're just trying to get through it as fast as possible. And you're like, okay, what are the two actions I want to hit? Because I just want to run my bureaucracy as many times as I can.
0: It's also really interesting, Jake, how Findorf fled to take the same action, stay in the same spot over and over again. If you want to just sit there and hire workers over and over... (laughs) You could. Uh, It typically does not feel good to be doing that. You feel the inefficiency of not having purchased those upgrades to do more with your single steps. But I think that for me and my play that created this really rich sort of decision space where I could sort of sit there, maybe hire a little bit to see what other people do. And then if there's this other power grid style market where Pete becomes more expensive or less expensive, and it sort of shifts throughout the course of the game, you could use kind of an inefficiency to speculate on the market making pete more valuable so trying to time like oh is this the right time to kind of jump in and, and make my trip through the rondelle i thought that that was a a fun lightly interactive thing
1: yeah this game's a big recommendation for me and it's one i picked up that i, I played at Geekway and, and immediately went out and bought a copy of and the reason i picked up a copy is because both of those two plays first of all the second play popped in a way that the first didn't so i liked it much more the second time approaching it with some knowledge of the system. And also both of those plays were done with a recommended setup of structure cards based on the number of players in the game. But there is an advanced variant of this game where you draft those structure cards, which I think could be really fun. And perhaps through that draft, if you are able to get some that are really synergistic, that might open up even further different avenues to succeed in this game beyond just building as yep. many structures as you can as fast as possible. So I'm excited to explore that more. And and if I get the chance, perhaps I'll, I'll report back on this podcast.
0: I will say I playing with that base setup, I felt that the, the core game itself there without the variability of the cards, which I'm sure would add a lot of replayability, I felt I could play at least five times and still be engaged and interested in exploring the puzzle. And maybe before we move on to our next Rondell game, I just want to mention this quick anecdote, Jake, which is that one of the buildings that I had built throughout the course of the game gave me a a unique power in the game, which some of the buildings do. Some of them just give you more income. Some of them give you immediate bonuses. Mine was I built the cemetery. And when you build the cemetery, whenever someone goes through that bureaucracy step and one of their people die, uh, they have to pay you. (laughs) rip to, to bury the, their dead which was mechanically sort of fun and interesting and then also i will say for a euro game it was just funny because it led to every single time someone did the bureaucracy stage it led to me just sort of reminding them by saying my condolences but you know please do pay up. And we just had a lot of fun with that. For a game that looks as sort of like a stuffy old Euro, I didn't expect it to be as charming as it was.
1: Yeah. And it kind of has this thing where all the structures in the game are just busted. (laughs) A lot of them are, they all seem super strong. So it has this kind of funny moment where it has an index on the back of the rule book and people are kind of passing it around and reading what their thing does and just like cackling because it's so ridiculously powerful but then they're all powerful Uh, so they're all good and it just makes the game ramp up so fast in such a satisfying way so that's Findorf. really fun game uh really fun Rondell game brendan what do you say we switch over
0: yeah let's talk about imperial 2030 now this is another game we played together on the table recently at geekway to the west this is a 2009 rio grande publication that was a follow-up to a game called imperial uh that took imperial 2023 2030 takes all the systems and puts it on a global scale so this is a another rondelle game where you're doing taking actions like uh building factories producing, maneuvering troops that you've built, investing in countries, uh, maybe buying troops, paying a, a steep price for that, or taxing. And we'll talk about what some more of those mean, but this game was designed by Matt Gertz. And Matt Gertz first just uh, his first Rondell
1: on- God.
0: Yeah. So he's really the, <laughs> maybe the progenitor or the very least the popularizer of these Rondell games. Uh, so I'm really thrilled that we're able to have this conversation while dis- discussing one of his games. I think it w- is really only appropriate. He published a, uh, Antica in 2005, which kind of kicked this off. That's another Rondell-driven game. Then throughout the process, did Imperial a year later, then Imperial 2030, a few years after that. Followed that up with Navigador, another Rondell-driven game. Uh, Then also did Concordia in 2013. And Concordia doesn't have a Rondell, but the way you play your cards in the game kind of simulates a Rondell. So he's very much working in and exploring this mechanism as a way to add novel action selection. I think that's what Rondell really came out of, was trying to add variability and forcing players to take certain actions uh, throughout the course of play.
1: I'll just also call out 2017, 2017's Transatlantic has the Concordia style card action selection. And it's one of my top 50 games of all time. My favorite Gertz game that I've played to date.
0: Transatlantic is such an interesting game about like buying ships at the right time and using them for a few years. It's it's very thematic. And
1: I just wanted to make sure I got a mention because I think it's like a little bit of like a hidden gem a hit. Yeah. I
0: would. Yeah, so let's talk more about Imperial 2030 and its systems really quickly. This game has a map of the world in front of you. And any player at the table is going to... You, you're you not playing as a country, though. Though the countries are there, it almost looks like risk. But instead of playing as a country, you play as a... I would say sort of like a shady behind-the-scenes corporate interest. You're an investor. An investor trying to bend the, the world and geopolitics to your own favor. So instead of controlling owning a country, instead of being a country, you control positions in a country, you have shares, a certain amount of ownership in given countries. And if you have the most shares in a country at a table, you are the one who controls the actions that you take. Countries have their own banks, they have their own money, and you are trying to basically ensure the success of that country so your shares in it are valuable, while at the same time extracting as much money from that country to your own personal coffers as possible so you can use that to either reinvest in the country or invest in another country that you see as strong and craft the board's shapes, the shape of the board to benefit you in that. Jake, I hear you want to jump in.
1: I just want to jump in because you wanted the countries to be powerful because by, you know, dominating the board and taxing when you have a lot of regions under your control, like the actual power and prestige of that country goes up, which is the multiplier at the end of the game that you'll multiply your shares against. So it's this really funny thing where you start out invested in a country, you want to be the most, you know, you want that country to become powerful because you have this big comparative advantage of investment in that country. But if you do a really good job, all of a sudden everybody's just buying shares. If I start out as China and China's dominating, doing really well. Then everyone on the table is just buying shares of China and all my hard work is kind of diluted because everybody is now taking advantage of
0: that efficient yeah. management of the country. Yep. Which is really interesting. And then the Rondell in Imperial 2030, I mentioned it earlier, but it has a couple uh, of the action spaces appear twice. So production, which allows you to put troops in every space where you have a factory or a shipyard uh, on the board and kind of build up your position, but that's going to make it more expensive. You're going to have to pay more money when you get to the taxation step. There's there's two maneuver spaces. So that's moving your troops around, maybe starting combat. combat, And then there's one taxation, which Jake just mentioned. You look at how much area you control uh, and that gives you uh, more money but also then you have to pay for all the troops you have so that's going to reduce the amount you're putting in uh then you can pay to build factories there's also two spaces that only impair once the import space this action that none of us really use that much but i think is really there such that if you get control of a another country you can sort of push their coffers towards this action where you're inefficiently getting short-term troops but you're kind of burning the company the country a little bit but most importantly besides that Jake's squinting at me is the investor action that's at the very end of the rondel, When you get to this space, that's where the country is going to pay back out to its shareholders. And one player at the table is holding the investor card. And that means they get to have an opportunity to take their own personal money and invest that back into a country, trading it for shares. So they're basically making a, a bet in the long term that that country is going to do really well in the game or they're trying to wrest control of a company away from another player i'm saying company because they feel like companies but they're really countries wrest <laughs> control away from another player and maybe purposely tank that country so they can not accomplish what they want to accomplish leaving more room for the countries you actually care about to do well and the really interesting thing about imperial 2030 is every time someone a country's marker moves fully around the rondel that very crucial thing happens. So it's, again, another example of the spaces on the rondelle and the order that you take them in matter. What you give up matters, but also just completing it matters. And that becomes an important tool for pacing and the flow of the game.
1: Yeah, and I'll just start the conversation about the rondelle in this game versus Findorf, where I feel like the rondelle here feels very restrictive. You mm. are able to pay additional money out of your personal supply, so that's points at end the end of the game. Points to advance the rondelle beyond the three spaces you can normally uh, are allotted up to three spaces. But And and there are many times we really want to do that because you want to move around quickly because you want to basically do a maneuver so that you can take ground and then tax where you have as much ground as possible covered. But if you use the first maneuver space and that taxation is five spaces away, But if you forego that, then there's a whole nother time around the table where people can have the opportunity to kind of attack back and reclaim land. So that now when you get the chance to do the taxation space, it's not nearly as lucrative for that country. Uh, So that felt really restrictive, right? I felt like I couldn't take the spaces I want often in this game which made it more almost less tactical and more strategic where you really are thinking the Rondell forces to think two three turns down the line versus Findor, where it feels so tactical because all the actions are always available to me what's the best one right now
0: yeah. And you're also trying to think through how the actions that you're taking for the country that you control, if you do control a country, players can end up not controlling any country, sort of an interesting position to be in. You claim the Swiss bank and there's some other rules for you. But you're trying to think through okay, how can I have the most money possible extracted from the countries I'm a part of when? it's time for me to reinvest. Because being able to reinvest a lot of money is what could potentially make it such that you could take control of another country. I ended yeah. up in this really interesting position, Jake, where I almost got control of another player's country, India. And I was one share short, just like barely missed it, which meant that it put pressure on him to then get back to where he had enough money to reinvest in India. So he kept control of it. So He didn't want to give it up to me, which I, I thought was this really interesting texture. And in part is that rigidity that you're talking about. You can only reinvest when it's your turn, which only comes once every time it goes all the way around the table. We were playing at six. I think it would have felt a little bit more flexible at the four player count. There's mm-hmm. six countries in the game, so we each had one of our own, which meant we got a little more entrenched in them than maybe we would have if there were four players in that game. I th-
1: and I think a big factor too is that investment card. So only one person around the table is allowed to buy shares. So you have to wait till six countries move across that last space on the rondelle before you build be able to buy shares again, where in a four-player game, the countries are still moving around the rondelle just as quickly, but the investor card is moving around the table, you know, fifty percent faster or, or yep. whatever it is. Um, so that would, I think, that would dramatically change just how dynamic people can be in their positions. Like it really took a lot of time, you know, in order for somebody to actually re- to actually overtake somebody and take control of a, another country, which is why I think it only happened towards the very end of our six-player game. At the same time, I. I wonder if people listen to this maybe are overestimating how empowerful or impactful it would actually be to take o- over somebody's country because if you take over someone's country that just means like you're even more invested in that country than the other person but fear th- but you're still both wanting it to succeed because you're both heavily invested in that country meaning it's not like somebody is likely to Take over a country and then intentionally try and tank it. You know, they might, they basically the best you could do would be to use that country to bolster a secondary country in which you have a greater share than the other person with a high ownership stake in the country. So everything, so I said to say everything in this game, every tactical strategic decision you make feels a lot more nuanced than the game. It looks like risk where you're just trying to take over the world.
0: And we ended up because of that, with this really interconnected web of uh, ownership of all of these different countries that in our play, it was our first play really locked down the board. We had this early, these early turns where we were producing it and moving and, taking a production action, then really quickly hitting the next spot, but the maneuver action and trying to spread out as quickly as we could. We had some players who were a little more cautious, some who were willing to take risks and maybe leave their home areas to extend out. And then once we vaguely got the positions we had, the mid game was a lot of building up, investing in other countries, and then being really nervous about shaking the global order and trying to make any big moves. And I don't think, Jake, you know, we've talked to some people who've played Imperial 2030 even more than us who said, you know, in the late game, it's typically really, really exciting because you're trying to, maybe if you don't think you're going to be the person who ends the game by getting your country to a certain position, you get to a nice threshold where you're getting lots of multiplier points from how many shares you have. And you're just going to push out, maneuver a bunch, spread across the world, then tax To get a bunch of money and then pay that out like you don't care about the end state where your country ends up and i think we did more than we would if we had played it again so the pace of our game was really exciting first half and then a very slow sort of clogged up second half that maybe would change if we played it again
1: i think that this game system allows for really dynamic game states that i'm sure we would only grow in our understanding and appreciation of in more plays it is a game i'd play again but i think i would cultivate a four player experience i definitely wouldn't want to play it again at six at least until i've had another play first and i think even five would just feel too similar but four feels like that would be a really exciting and different experience that I definitely do want to try. You were talking about sort of the shared incentives all over the place. And it was just funny in our game because this game also leads to the sort of like, Coalition building, alliance making type of things where you're allowed to move into somebody's region, and if everybody's okay with it, then they don't. You don't have to fight. So it's like I, uh, I really want to attack China. Can Russia? Can I please like move through your country? You know, and I won't attack you. I'll just go for China. And they're sure. So that kind of thing can happen. So in our game, it seems like the players playing. India and China were in the strongest position to win the game in like the meta sense. And then the person playing Brazil was just going complete wild card and just trying to take over the world. Like they thought they were playing risk. Um, And then so then it was me, who I was playing the USA, you were playing Europe, and then the Beer for Dad and the Discord is playing Russia. And we kind of were trying to create this alliance that we knew we needed to have to stop uh, the China and or India player from winning the game. But every time we were trying to like work together, you kept getting in the way because you were like so heavily invested in India, where yeah. we're like, we need to attack them. And you're or like, okay, we're all for it. And then Brennan's like, ooh, actually... I'm just gonna buy more India stock. <laughs>
0: yeah. It, well, it's really funny too, Jake, because when you buy shares, it's basically like a proclamation of like, I'm on your team now. Yeah. But unless the player who has the most shares of that same country also buys shares in your country, they're sort of like you're on my team, but I'm not on your team. Yeah. And it, it, Yeah.
1: And all like the player who definitely had their starting country perform the best over the game was China. Like the China yes. country was the furthest advanced. But the player who played China didn't win because all of us around the table were so invested, invested in, China. in China by the end of the game that I think we were, we were all surprised. Like we thought that Jared was going to win. Uh, I think he thought so too, but it kind of ended up, I think he did get second. So he did really well in the game, but yeah, it ended up that he was sort of doing this he had good work he over-invested for everybody in doing yeah. too much good
0: work for everyone. Yep. He needed to,
1: yeah, he needed to uh, maybe take like a small step back or, and, and, somehow. But then again, like finding that edge, like how you could even because again, China was the most profitable country, so like, why wouldn't you want to keep investing into it? It's hard for me to sit here and think like, how do you even find that edge or slight advantage if you're in that position and everybody's just buying stock in your country uh, to take advantage of that? Best. It's it's a really confounding game in that sense.
0: And the share purchasing mechanism is really interesting because it's a speculation mechanism. You're speculating on the future value of what those shares will be based on the board state you think will exist in the future yeah. and at the end of the game and there were times
1: when i like didn't buy china because i was like maybe we're gonna all sort of come to consensus that we need to like destroy china
0: yeah you know because china's getting
1: out of the control but then everybody's kept buying more china (laughs) and everyone was too invested in it to like commit to that
0: this game definitely feels like it's from an era where you would have a group that would invest in playing a game 10 times 20 times 30 times and this would be a game you might pick and it's a game that i've I would be interested in doing that with i really would like to play more imperial 2030 um so we'll see also maybe jake as we pivot now towards rondels, my final comma in imperial 2030 is like the order of action spaces on the rondelle is so important if you move if you swap the location of production and man- maneuver across that rondel, all of a sudden the feel of the game the pacing of the game dramatically changes and i think when people are putting together rondelle games or thinking how they'll work that's a huge huge, huge first step is considering the sequence and flow. And is it what type of feel that's going to lend to the game and its decisions? Yeah,
1: yeah, totally. Because a sequence that is a uh, Rondell laid out in the sequence that players want to naturally take versus the opposite of that, you have fundamentally different games on your hand. All right, well, let's pivot, Brendan. Let's talk about Rondells in a broader sense in the last 15 or 20 minutes of this podcast.
0: So we talked about at the start of the show, Jake, these sort of action rondelles, things that feel like Imperial 2030 and Findorf, where really all of the rondel spaces are action spaces. They're allowing you to do things in the game. Um, and then we talked about the sort of market rondelles, where you're getting access to certain pieces and typically what you give up, just like what actions you give up, is a really important part of the cost of taking certain action, any action in the game and opportunity cost. And then we also talked about a game like Great Western Trail, which has a little bit of both. And... Great Western Trail is really interesting, Jake, because it's a rondelle game. It's a a card driven uh, game in which you're trying to collect sets of cards and throughout your trip through the rondelle, build up a strong hand of cards, which you'll then at the end of the rondelle deliver those cows and start again at the beginning. But in this game, the rondelle changes throughout the course of the game. Part of the actions that you can take is actually modifying the actions available to you on future loops. You can use this builder action. That's one of the ways that you can build and augment your rondelle and also sort of emergently make certain actions for different players more expensive or less expensive by adding taxation to areas on the board so you can speed up or slow down players' paths through the board and also how much money they'll have. Uh, So Great Western Trail is almost like a rondelle on steroids.
1: Yeah, totally. It's a it's a weird game and we have covered it in depth if people are interested in learning like a lot more about Great Western Trail and our thoughts on how that works in a previous episode. I wanted to touch a little bit more on the market rondels because the games in with in that Sub genre that I've played feel a little bit hybridy too. Like when you talk about Glenmore, that's a game where you're going around a rondel and whatever tile you land on, you add that to your state. And that also triggers the action of that tile and all adjacent tiles too. So yes, it's a market rondelle for sure, but it's also the action. Triggering point in the yep. game and it's it works the same in uh heaven and ale uh kramer and kiesling game i think it's yeah it is that i it got some that i got to play at geekway which works similarly right in each each round players start at the beginning of a big circle and move around the rondel in as far at or as short as they want but you can never go back uh and Whatever tile you land on, again, it goes onto your state, but that's also the same way that you trigger actions in the game. So it is it is a, definitely, again, a market Rondell system, but I just think it's a little bit more nuanced than just saying like this is just about getting sure. resources because it's also like the actions that you're taking too. The actions are just tied to the resource that you're getting. And gaining. in
0: both of those games, at least, Jake, in Patchwork and Glenmore 2, the turn order is dynamic. And based on the player who's furthest behind on the rondelle, uh, such that, you know, moving further is going to give your opponent potentially more moves before you get to go again. Whereas in Imperial 2030 and Findorf, it's just going around the table. So it, it less so is that. And that's another interesting way that rondels can affect the opportunity cost of certain actions is whether or not it's just turns around the table or it's based yeah. on a time track or something
1: yeah just a point of clarification in heaven and ale it is turns around the table but still has that same mechanism of you can go as far as want, you want yep. you're just giving up the opportunity to take potentially more actions because if you're the last person to go you can sort of scoop up every action that was left untaken assuming you have the money and the resources to actually do something with so that.
0: maybe now is a good point to like talk about all the different pieces of rondelles. So like the design questions one might ask themselves and also the considerations a player might think about when sitting down to play a rondelle and the ways in which that unique version of this mechanism will be expressed. So I have a list here. I'm going to go through it and maybe we can parse out some of the more interesting consequences. But the first one is like the number of action spaces. How big is this rondelle? How are there duplicates in it? Is the rondelle going to change or shift throughout the course of play? I think a game with a set path, like Imperial, uh, how big those actions become certainly shifts. Like as you build more factories, taking the production mechanism is going to do more for you. As you control more territory, the production action is going to do more. We are always doing the same core things. feels really differently right, than a game like Great Western Trail, where the actions that I'm taking along the rondelle in the beginning are vastly different than the end of the game in, in most cases.
1: Another interesting sort of wrinkle to throw in there too is this is more to do with the market rondos. They those share a lot of similarities to one way time tracks. Like in the game of Glenmore or Heaven and Ale, you could almost just lay out all the tiles that are gonna come out in a line. In a patchwork you do. And in a patchwork you do and have people, you know, move across them and then, you know, every when a quarter of them have been passed, okay, you can like trigger your income phase oh, phaser. Yep. Right. And so it's interesting to think about what's the difference about structuring as a circle. I guess the obvious difference is you keep some, you have less vis- visible information, you have more hidden information, which probably reduces AP considerably. Um, but fundamentally, it is sort of the same thing as a one way.
0: Interestingly, track. in patchwork too, though, Jake, depending on how it plays out timing wise, you could loop around. And go yeah, back exactly. To so I think patchwork
1: doesn't quite fit in exactly, but Heaven and Ale or Glenmore II, I think, yeah, you're never going to come back to the same things. I think once you get to the end, you just wipe off the ones that were untaken. Definitely in Heaven and Ale, that's yeah. how it
0: works. Interesting. It's almost like rondels. You jump between. It's a series of rondels that you're looping along. Yeah, exactly. The next big question for me, Jake, that sort of so much dictates these games and how they feel is how far can players move along the rondelle? Can and also can players pay to move more is is that part of the decision within the game and i think that a lot of the most interesting decisions in Rondell games are tied to well how far should i move and what am i giving up because of that i'm going to go back to great western trail which is a game where you start by mo- being able to move 3 spaces and can pay to upgrade how far you can move to up to 5 at the end of the game a lot of that game because the end game is tied to the number of loops around the table ends up being about trying to push pace trying to run your little cowboy as fast as you can back to Kansas City to drop off. Once you think you're in the lead that that leads to a different, really different field than a game like Imperial 2030, where the end game is tied to how, how well people are doing on the board and how many times they've taken a certain action that kind of like checks how well they're doing and maybe pays out the person who did that action and controls that country a little bonus. So it's, it's slightly different. And then within patchwork, right? It's tied to opportunity costs of if I move three, I'm going to potentially give Jake access to everything behind me in terms of options if he wants them. And then there's blocking that comes involved in some of these games versus not in others. In games like Imperial 2030, anyone can take any action space. There's no blocking that's there. Whereas in Patchwork, uh, a consideration is if I take this tile, you can't. Or if I, you know, and that's an interesting consideration to make in these games. Sometimes
1: you could like there are other ways you could do that, too, where it's like you can move three spaces, but jump over people or or something like that. Um, It just depends how you want to handle it. I have a couple thoughts on sort of how far you can move. And the first is. I think the intersection between the size of the rondel in terms of number of different actions and how far you can move is what makes a rondel feel like an open or more restricted decision space, right? Findor feels as open of a decision space as you can get in a rondel because you can reach all the actions on any given turn of the game. There are only uh, four total spaces and you can move zero to three spaces so you can stay or you can move all the way to to that one that's three away, the fourth space, uh, versus Imperial, right, where you can't move all the way around the rondelle in a single move without spending a lot of money slash points, uh, which makes it feel really restrictive, right? I can't take the taxation action, even though that's the action that I need to take. And you could picture a Rondell that's even much more exacerbated than that. What if there were 10 actions and you can only 10 different actions, you can move up to two spaces, right? right? That's going to make it feel really restrictive. If there's certain actions that you want to get to, to take.
0: That's also going to force people to have fairly similar or more similar paths through the game unless the actions that you're taking are allowing you to do different things right if we can only move one to two spaces and there's 10 on the board well we're all going to be doing some of the same stuff whereas in Findorf, as you sort of were saying maybe there's a way in which you end up just kind of camping in an action and doing similar things or jumping between two of them because you can access and maybe multiple people are doing two actions more than any of the other actions and you get that yeah. specialization I
1: think that's something that you really want to be thoughtful about too when you're designing a Rondell game is how is player differentiation coming into the game? Because if you're all starting in the same space, like we ran into this in Imperial 2030 where all the pieces start on the same spot. And it's sort of like, why wouldn't we take the, you know, build a factory space first or whatever it was, right? right? And almost all the countries ended up started started with the same thing. And then they're on the same space again. So, okay, well, now that we have the factories we want to produce, right? So, you know, it started out everybody doing the same thing over and over. You could have the same thing in Findorf, right? Where you definitely want to purchase first, because that's going to make uh, your subsequent action stronger. The way Findorf handles that design challenge is that every uh, t- type of tile in the game has an increasing cost. Like Maybe the first one costs three, and then the one below that, if, if if Brendan takes a tile to improve his purchase action, it costs three, then maybe the next one costs five. If I buy that two, then the next one costs seven. So all of a sudden, maybe the third person in turn order is like, actually, I'm going to enhance my higher action instead, because If I take that, then I'm just paying way more cost than these other two guys for the same benefit. So I think that that's been a really intentional design choice to push differentiation, because I do think Rondells have a natural tendency for sameness especially in like the start of the yeah, game.
0: Yeah, I think because you're right moving through that arc consistently throughout the game, there's this fear that they can get repetitive. I think that's one reason why getting to the end of a loop in a rondelle typically features some important thing. Uh, but that also means that if it's the same thing that's happening over and over again, if you're always delivering cows when you get to Kansas City and Great Western Trail, that can start to feel samey too. So it might be interesting for someone to try to design a rondelle where every time you reach the end, there's a different action that is variably set up to occur and and each time you did that, that would give the game a really different pace or arc throughout the game, uh, which is kind of neat. I've, I haven't seen yeah. a game that does that. There's probably one out there. If you know of one, I'd love to see it and kind of study that game to learn more about it.
1: The interesting thing about Great Western Trail, which admittedly d- didn't hit for me, was that you compared to Findorf, which you're just getting stronger and stronger every time you loop yep. basically in great western trail it doesn't necessarily feel the same sometimes you have a great hand of cows that you're delivering and then the next time through you might have nothing good you just or kind whatever of or, or, yeah yeah it's just kind of a miss and and then you have a big one and then a miss or whatever it doesn't have that sense of like escalation and improvement and getting building no. up
0: there is the times Uh-oh. where you can get to New York at the very end. The game overall kind yeah. of builds to it. But I see what you're saying. We're like sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down, you're not always up. Whereas in Findorf, you're kinda always up.
1: Yeah. 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 The other thing I was thinking about just to do with the how far you can move. And this is we've been talking a little bit more about the action selection rondels, but in the market rondels, how far you can move, it feels like can be a big like how much are you willing to let your players make a massive mistake Mm. it's almost like the guardrail for the game because if you can go as far as you want and can't go back it can be difficult like sitting there the first time playing a game to know like is moving three spaces forward just like way too far and in some games it's totally fine other games like Glenmore i like in my plays of that it has the main thing is like you just always want to move as few spaces as possible and let other people sort of dig their own graves by giving you too much value um, by letting you get more actions and tiles in them Uh, whereas heaven and ale didn't work that that way uh you know in our play i was surprised to find that my two opponents who had experience with the game were jumping like a third way around the rondelle in their first Mm. move because the constraining factor there is money to actually Play the tiles into your board more so than just getting the the tiles and the actions. Um, so yeah I feel like that's that's the guardrail because it's easy to picture a game where okay go as far as you want somebody goes six spaces and then they're just like out of the game because they just gave up the whole world to the other person in Glenmore. And I
0: feel like that Jake that's where a lot of the potential for a game arc to be really strong in a rel- rondelle can come from is when the action spaces do the same type of thing but the product isn't always the same right? So like in a game in a imperial when you're when you take the taxation spot on your first action. That's a mistake. Almost like most likely, right? You're just you haven't expanded very far, so you haven't claimed that many countries. So you're not going to get that much money. You probably have you're some putting like $2, $2 into your country's right.
1: bank, right? It just doesn't But rain.
0: late game, if you've built up a big force pushed out, that force has been cleared off the board so you don't have to pay a lot of taxes, but you still control a lot of territory and you slam on that taxation spot, it's just going to gush money into your coffers. And that feels really differently. It feels like something you had to plan for, to build towards, and for that to pay off. And I think that that's where it can be really cool is where the spaces are being recontextualized. And a lot of the game is about figuring out the exact way to set up the biggest turn or the right turn for any of these given spaces. Great Western Trail does that slightly differently, not by changing, not by the context of the spaces changing, but the spaces literally changing. You just have a better building that does more later in the game because you've built up to it most likely, or maybe you did some other strategy that doesn't really augment your rondelle at all. And that's why that game is so flexible. And I think why it has lots of fans because it appeals to lots of different play types.
1: Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think, I think that's very well said. If, the rondelle is static, which you would expect in an action selection rondell style. I guess that's another big difference between the two. The action selection rondelle is always going to be static. These are the actions, whereas with the market, you could have influx of new tiles and new actions coming into that. So if, if the... Rondell is static, you need the board to be dynamic to your point. Recontextualizing those actions over the course of the game, making them and that's what's cool about Imperial, right? They really uh wax and then wane in power over over the course
0: yeah. of the game. Yeah. Totally. So by the
1: end, like all you really care about is either like ramping up a country's power level or hitting that invest spot to getting cash into your own pockets. Yep.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I hope you all enjoyed this conversation on Findorf, on Imperial 2030, two games that Jake and I really enjoyed. I think Jake is slightly hotter on Findorf. I'm slightly hotter on Imperial 2030. Um, and this conversation of Rondell's. I know that for some of you, uh, if you're longtime listeners of Decision Space, you might be thinking, oh, I really love Rondell games. And maybe now that Jake and did this episode, that means they won't do a what we talk about on Rondell games in the future, what Rondell-driven games. I want to assure you that that's. We, we might still do that. There's, this is a, a cool thing about episodes like these is it feels like it could be the starting point of a bigger conversation that sort of develops. And these games are nuanced and interesting. So if that's something you'd be interested in, in potentially let us know uh, for all of our, pre planners out there also the people who play games with us uh to prepare for deep dives coming i'd like to let you know that our patrons have selected twa as our future game you already knew that if you're a long-time listener uh but that's going to be our next deep dive so if you want to get a plan now is the time check out the online implementation on board game arena if you'd like to do that
1: we'll be covering it next week next
0: week next week
1: yeah so it's coming up uh and we know people love our deep dives we know people love our what we talk about style episodes so we're committed to continuing to bring you
0: that type of content. We're hitting all the Rondell spaces.
1: And maintaining like our high level of editorial standards where we are playing the games you know, 10 or 12 times before covering it. Because we know that's what differentiates Decision Space from a lot of the other awesome podcasts. In the board game hobby that are doing more of like first impression type content which is fantastic too
0: i want to make one last appeal uh just for if you've enjoyed the discussion here and you want more if you have thoughts about any of the things that we've covered is there something that we missed about Rondell games check out the link to our discord in our show notes discord is just like a chat room that you anyone can access from their web browser and there's a group of over 300 people who love talking about games and they're a decision-based listener just like you thoughtful intrigued and want to talk about more come talk with us i'd also also like to thank hembrief uh for our intro and outro song reach out uh and that's what you should do reach out to us with more more thoughts about decision space check out decisionspacepodcast.com uh for more and until then we'll see you next week with t- a deep dive of twa Goodbye. bye bye